This morning, we are going to wrap up our topical study of divorce together in Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, within our overarching uh, study of the gospel of Mark this year. And as I said last week, uh, I recognize that this is a very sensitive, uh, personal topic for many of us. Um, I've got my own baggage that I bring to this issue. As I mentioned, I'm the only person in my family of origin who's not divorced. Uh, The only reason we're still married is because I have an amazing, faithful, godly wife. A divorce ruined my family growing up, so I hate it. But it doesn't matter what I think about it. Uh, What matters is what God thinks about it. Um, And God hates it. It's a direct quote from Malachi 2.16. I hate divorce, says the Lord. So to quickly recap last week, if you weren't here, uh, we recognize that um, before we do anything, we need to ask ourselves the first question you see in your bulletin there, what's the posture of my heart? Uh, If we are like the Pharisees here in Mark 10, and we're coming to Jesus, coming to God's word, Uh, looking for validation of what we already believe. If our motive is to twist scripture into whatever we want or need it to to say in order to self-justify and self-condone our actions, our behavior, then according to Jesus, no matter our behavior, no matter the passage of scripture, we do this with any number of issues in the church, uh, that we stand self-condemned. We must start with humility, acknowledging that he is God, that I am not, and so I'm going to humbly submit myself under the authority of his inspired, inerrant word. That's a starting point. After all, if it's really God's word, should we not expect to be challenged by it? Uh, If the Bible never confronts you, if you never find yourself opposed by what is being said to you in Scripture, at some point you've got to ask yourself, is this really God's word or is it my word? Uh, Am I just reading my own beliefs and presuppositions into Scripture? Sinners should expect to be defied by holy God. And secondly, we noted last week that in order to understand why God hates divorce so much, we first have to understand and appreciate why God loves marriage so much. He loves marriage because it's the closest analogy. It's the most powerful representation, dare I say, sacrament a sacred outward visible symbol of an internal spiritual reality. Marriage is a picture. It's the picture of God's unbreakable covenant of loving faithfulness to his people. Marriage is supposed to be, according to Ephesians 5.32, a profound mystery that powerfully points people to Christ, to Christ's unconditional love and unfailing commitment to his bride, to the church. So God hates Divorce, because it misrepresents his relationship with his people to the world. Divorce tells a lie about God. He also hates divorce because it kills a marriage. A living, spiritual, invisible, yet no less real and valuable, God-ordained, God-blessed, God-birthed, to become one flesh union between a couple. Jesus says, what God has knit together, let no man separate. And then lastly, from last week, before we pick back up today, I just want to reiterate where we left off that the enemy, Satan, would love nothing more this morning than to use this message in someone's heart to harden you against the good news of the gospel. Don't miss the forest for the trees this morning. The good news is that there is 
as we just heard in our assurance of pardon that Scott read for us from Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The divorce is not the unforgivable sin of Mark 3. The divorce does not separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39. That regardless of whether we've kept our promises to one another or not, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so our hope is secure in his faithfulness, not our own. Amen? I was reflecting um, this past week, and I was struck by the realization that the Sunday after my father left my mother for another woman, and after the elders of our church rightfully confronted him and disciplined him out of our church in accordance with Scripture, my father was back in church the following Sunday, a different church. He was back in church, and guess what? So was my mother. And I asked myself this past week, if a Bill Duvall, circa 1997, was visiting West Hills and sitting under my preaching, would he have left feeling convicted by the truth of God's word, confronting him in his sin? And at the same time, if a Jill Duvall was visiting, would she leave feeling incredibly loved and cared for, comforted, and restored in her soul. That's a really tough balance to strike up here. <laughs> I'm not excusing any imperfections I have as a preacher. I'm just, I'm just being honest about how hard this is. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and encourage with complete patience and teaching. Re rebuke and encourage. Convict and comfort. That's my calling. That's why we're here. And so would you stand with me as you're able for the reading or the rereading of God's word from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. I'll read from the ESV. I'll be on the screen in front of you. And Jesus left there. He went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples again asked him about the matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I just want to begin again this morning by confessing that we are sinful, that whether it's this passage or another one, we are all guilty of a 
of coming to your word, approaching your word from a position of superiority, um, de facto, just thinking, approaching your word from a posture of uh, it needing to answer to us as opposed to approaching your word for what it is and for what it deserves from us, our humble obedience, our submission, your authoritative, inspired, inerrant, good, redemptive, saving word. And so, Father, this morning, I pray for softened hearts for all of us as we study together uh, for fertile soil in our hearts that the seed of your gospel, even in the midst of this really particular issue of divorce, that we might not lose sight of the gospel and that the seed of the gospel might be able to take root in the soil of someone's heart this morning. And uh, for, for our good and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So question number three that we need to ask in light of Mark 10 is, if everything that we just recapped is true, about how much God hates divorce, then why did God seem to allow for it in the Old Testament? Jesus asked here in verse 3, what did Moses command you? And the Pharisees admit he never commanded divorce. The only command was Genesis 2.24, what God has joined together, let not man separate, don't divorce. And yet, verse 4, Moses did allow for divorce. Specifically, back in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 that we looked at last week. Let's read it again. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs from his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her, writes her then a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, and then her former husband who sent her away, he may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So we'll come back to this in a bit. But for now, if God hates divorce so much? Why even recognize it as a possibility there in the Old Testament? We know that God doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, I the Lord do not change. So it's not the case that 3,500 years ago when he was talking to Moses, God was okay with divorce and then he changed his mind 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years later when he was talking with Jesus. That's not the case. He always has hated divorce. So how do you explain Deuteronomy 24? I'll offer you two explanations. Uh, number one, the law was a temporary guardian. Uh, that's how the uh, Apostle Paul puts it in uh, Galatians 3. Paul, the former Pharisee himself, saved by the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, now argues that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But then Paul's got to explain why God gave us the law in the first place. So he reasons, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the Old Testament law was temporarily given for 1,500 years until Christ came. 
to be a stopgap measure for sin. It was added uh, because of transgression, Paul says, or the way that Jesus puts it here in Mark 10.5, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment about divorce. So there's a real sense... I like this analogy in which we can understand God's relationship with his people over time throughout history as evolving much like any loving parent's relationship with their children evolves. So you take something like spanking, for instance. I'm going to try and hit all the most controversial issues this morning. You take something like spanking. We've all heard the Bible's wisdom on spanking. Proverbs 13, 24, spare the rod, spoil the child. But he who loves his child is diligent to discipline him. So when used appropriately, spanking your toddler can be a loving, biblical, disciplinary measure. But if you are still beating your teenager, we need to talk. Similarly, God's character never changes, but the way he parents his children does change over time. Why? Because we change. We grow up. And so the relationship evolves. That's the the reason for so many of the the, the differences that we find between the Old Testament law and what we see in the New Testament. God instituted these laws surrounding things like divorce and slavery and polygamy, not because he was ever in favor of those practices, but for the same reason that you might have a rule at your house about what you expect your child to do when he tinkles on the toilet seat. Not because you want him to do it, because but because you accommodate your parenting to the realities of where your kid's at developmentally, right? And the second and related reason that we find divorce in the Old Testament is that God is omniscient. Look uh, look with me briefly at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, And he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Now, God gave this command to the Israelites long before they ever entered the promised land. But remember, before he's even done delivering the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, the people are already building a golden calf to worship. Okay, so Israel's idolatry does not catch God by surprise. He's not caught off guard by this. He's omniscient. In fact, at at the very end of the law, Deuteronomy 30, God says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, blessings if you obey me, curses if you disobey me. It's your, your choice. And then the very next chapter, in chapter 31, Right before Moses dies, God tells Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise up and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my my covenant. God's not, there's no uncertainty. He's omniscient. He knows what's going to happen. They will forsake me, break my covenant that I have made with them. He predicts their apostasy. He knew it when he wrote Deuteronomy 7 that they'd end up marrying these foreign women and whore after false gods. So what did he do? He included Deuteronomy 24 as well to allow for divorce in these kinds of extreme cases. Because God loves divorce? Likes divorce? No. Because God hates divorce a little less than he hates idolatry. 
this is a really important point that a lot of Christians get wrong. All sins against a holy God deserve eternal punishment. But that does not mean that all sins are equal in God's eyes. That is a common, unbiblical uh, assumption, theological assumption that some Christians make. All sins are not equal in God's eyes. Of course they're not equal. We've already studied the unforgivable sin in Mark 3. God differentiates between sin. And God hates adultery. It's number seven on his top ten list. But he hates it less than number one. Idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. But even when God made a provision for divorce in extreme cases in the Old Testament, he still clearly treats it as the lesser of two horrible evils. Listen to how Malachi describes it. The Lord no longer regards your offerings. You say, why, why not? Well, because he was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? That's significant. Take note of that. It's not even just two become one flesh in your marriage with your partner. It's three become one. It's you, your spouse, and the Holy Spirit. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew there literally translates the man who divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. Don't believe the lies, friends. Divorce isn't something that just happens. There's nothing passive about divorce. It is a violence that is committed by one person against another or by two people against one another. Divorce papers don't serve themselves. Someone makes a choice. Divorce, like marriage, is a choice. Which leads us back to Mark chapter 10. And question number four for this morning. Well, what does God think about divorce and remarriage today? And, and, and we'll start to kind of build in question five, what ought we to think about it? And I want to make it practical for you this morning. And Jesus is unequivocally clear in verses 10 through 12, whoever divorces his wife and remarries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So let's go ahead and get the rest of the biblical text in front of us and start to piece together some practical application. Luke 16, 18. It's the parallel passage from Luke's gospel to, to this encounter in Mark 10. Jesus there says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Notice the first half of the verses are virtually identical, but the second half is different. In Mark, Jesus had said... Uh, if she divorces him and gets remarried, then she commits adultery. But in Luke, Jesus says, if a man marries a woman who has previously uh, divorced her husband, then he commits adultery. So according to Jesus, both commit adultery, the man and the woman, if they were the ones who did the divorcing. In both cases, the verb divorce is an active participle. Again, divorce is not a passive thing. It's an action a decision. And Jesus emphasizes here that it really matters who does the divorcing. Legally today, maybe it doesn't. Practically speaking, I guess you both end up divorced. But in God's eyes, it really matters who gave up on the marriage. 
And if you're the one who does the divorcing, unless you meet one of three criteria that God is about to give us that justify divorce, then Jesus says your divorce was sinful and any remarriage equals adultery. So what are the exception clauses? Let's take them one by one in order of difficulty. The easiest is the death of a spouse. If your spouse dies, really doesn't even apply. It's not a divorce situation. There's no divorce. Um, but here are the two relevant biblical texts, so you can jot them down. First Corinthians seven thirty nine: a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If the husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. In Romans 7, 2, 2 and 3, a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. Uh, but if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning her husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So pretty straightforward. Now we come to the trickier cases. I've heard these exception clauses categorized as the three A's, abuse, abandonment, and adultery. So let's look at them. Take abuse first. 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. To the married I give charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, let her remain single or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So scripture, again, the default commands us, don't give up on your marriage. But interestingly, in verse 11 there, Paul does open the door right, to the idea that separation may be necessary in certain cases. He says, if she does separate, let her remain single or else be reconciled to her husband. And I think it's especially significant that Paul here addresses the wife. Of course, we know that um, abuse can go both ways, but I think it's significant that he's addressing the wife here because I think this appears to be God's way of accounting for cases of abuse. People have asked me if one of your congregants came up to you and disclosed that she'd been abused by her husband, would you tell her to stay in the marriage? And the honest answer is, it depends. It depends on a lot of factors. I, I would take that, of course, extremely seriously. And there are all sorts of questions I would need to begin to ask. First of all, and most importantly, are you and the kids safe? Uh, but then after that, you've got to ask, is this an ongoing issue or was it a past tense thing? Is this a one-time offense or a pattern of behavior? What type of abuse are we talking about? There's a lot of types, of types of abuse. What severity? Is he repentant for this sin? Or is he obstinate, unrepentant? Is there even a possibility of trust being rebuilt between you and your marriage again? I mean, there's any number of questions that would need to be talked through. But depending on the answers, I think 1 Corinthians 7 here clearly makes room for the possibility that there may be cases where what is best for her, and frankly what is best for him and for the marriage itself, is at the very least an extended period of separation. The second A uh, of the uh, exception clauses is abandonment. And so we stay in 1 Corinthians 7 and continue to read in verses 12 through 16. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, let's first note, Paul instructs us elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 6.14, not to be unequally yoked. So his working assumption is that a believer would never knowingly marry an unbeliever. That is a terrible life choice. Don't do it. No matter how much you love them, no matter how much you, they love you. If you're a believer and you're dating or engaged to someone who's not a believer right now, you break it off. Just period. But marriage is a whole different ballgame. So what about, in, in God's eyes, it change, there's a significant status change when you say, I do, a covenant. And so what about when one spouse comes to faith after marriage and the other is still unconverted? This is particularly common in Paul's day, right? I mean, Christianity is just being born, coming on the scene. So you've got tons of new adult uh, uh, congregants, Christians, converts in marriage. What should they do? Leave their their unconverted spouses? No. Paul's answer is clear. If your spouse still consents to live with you, you stay married. Being married to a non-Christian is not grounds for divorce. Verse 16, who knows? Maybe you'll save your spouse. You're a missionary in your own home. Missional dating is a horrible idea. Missional marriage is sometimes just a practical reality of the situation. You're making lemonade out of lemons. You're, you're praying that God would make lemonade. And so I just, on that note, want to say pastorally, I know that that applies to some people here this morning. I know that we have people who are unequally yoked in, in our church here at West Hills. And I just want you to know if that's you, I pray for you. I can't imagine how unbelievably hard that would be to have the person who is closest to you in the world, the person who sleeps beside you, the person who you share your life with, you give your heart to, to know that if they, they die tomorrow, they spend eternity in hell separated from God. I, mean, I, I cannot imagine the, the internal anguish that some of, some of you here um, suffer with. I can't imagine all the smaller issues you deal with on a daily basis approaching all of life from fundamentally different worldviews. I pray for you, but I also plead with you this morning, stay married. Stay married. Who knows? Uh, But in verse 15, to get back to our exception clause, Paul says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Paul doesn't even entertain the possibility, the idea that the believing spouse would be the one to give up on the marriage. He goes straight to the unbelieving partner um, because Paul realizes that Scripture isn't going to be binding on the conscience of the unbelieving partner in the same way that it's going to be for the believer. And he's just told them in verses 10 and 11, this is a command I got not from, not from me, but from God. Don't separate. But that's not going to be binding in the same way on the unbeliever. And so uh, if your unbelieving spouse 
leaves you, your lost husband separates, your, your non-Christian wife leaves you, then that brother or sister, the believer, is now no longer enslaved. Some translations say bound. That's a strong word. Marriage is a binding covenant. It is not a social contract. It is not a firm commitment. It's a till death do us part covenant before God and these witnesses. You're bound unless your unbelieving spouse walks away from the marriage and then you're free. Which leaves us with the third and the trickiest of the A's, adultery. So there's two relevant texts here to write down. Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. From Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of porneia, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then in Matthew 19.9, later, which is Matthew's version of the parallel text from this interaction with the Pharisees in Mark 10, it says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia, and marries another, commits adultery. So I've left the Greek word porneia there, untranslated. Because we often hear pastors reduce this exception clause down to to the A, to adultery. But interestingly, there was another word in Greek for adultery. And Matthew actually provides it for us right there in 532 and 19.9. Moikai And so if it's not that, that's what adult, specifically adultery is. So if, if it's not adultery, then what is porneia? Well, biblically, porneia refers generally to sexual out-of-boundness. Sexual immorality, as the ESV translates it here, it's not a bad translation. Porneia can refer to anything that violates God's design for sex. Most commonly, it can mean fornication, any and all sex outside of the confines of marriage. It was used more specifically in Jesus' world to refer to anything from adultery to homosexuality, incest, bestiality, prostitution, a whole host of deviant sexual practices. And so why do I say that this third A, adultery, porneia, is trickiest for us? Some of y'all will notice that the word porneia sounds familiar. It's where we get our word pornography. Pornography clearly meets the Bible's definition of sexual out-of-boundedness. It falls way short of God's glorious design for sex. And it is ruining marriages today in the church. So I ask you, is Jesus saying here that a wife is justified in seeking a divorce if her husband has ever looked at pornography? Feel the weight of that question for a second. Because if so, and the statistics, the church statistics hold true for us here at West Hills too, then you can look around the room right now and 70% of the guys sitting here right now are at risk of divorce. And actually it's much higher than that. Because 70% of, of, men, of church-going men today in America are actively using pornography. And so it's, if we're going to include everyone, including myself, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, obviously. If we're including everyone who's ever used porn at any point in my 11 years of marriage, 
and you're 25 years of marriage, you're 60 years of marriage. Now we're talking about well over 90% of Christian men. 90% of us who ought to be at the intimacy seminar next week. Would my wife be justified in divorcing me? Would your wife be justified in divorcing you, brother? Feel the weight of that for a minute, please. I don't want to try and answer that question for anyone else this morning. But I will use this opportunity to remind you that if you want to talk about that, my door is always open. I am not just your preacher, I'm your pastor. That's what I'm here for, to help you sort through difficult issues, offer biblical counsel on the real stuff of life. And I'm a real person. I keep it pretty real up here with y'all. And I'll just speak from personal experience this morning and say I am beyond grateful that my wife has never asked the question, would I be justified in leaving him? She could. I don't know what answer she would come to. She never even asked. I'm grateful that my mom, who after discovering that my father had been cheating on her with multiple women, lying to her for years, was ready to roll up her sleeves in marriage counseling and try her hardest to make it work. Jesus permits divorce in some cases. He never commands it. And I'm afraid that some Christians today are following in the Pharisees' footsteps here in Mark 10. We've taken these three small exceptions for divorce and we've blown them up into this whole system of loopholes. Because frankly, some people just want out. They want out of a marriage that they're not happy in. So making me feel unhappy and unfulfilled gets equated to abuse. If she's not meeting my needs, then she has effectively abandoned me. Please be careful. Please be careful. Yes, your spouse is a sinner, but guess what? So are you. Don't underestimate your own heart's ability to justify a sinful decision to give up on a marriage. And so I want to conclude with uh, question five. How should I approach marriage, divorce, and remarriage today? I want to leave you with uh, some practical quick hitters. Five different stations of life you might find yourself in and five different offerings of biblical counsel, advice. First of all, if you're here this morning and you're single, we haven't talked about you a lot um, because you're not the focus of Mark 10. I'll preach on you when we get to singleness. Um, But if you're single, praise God for it. Singleness is a gift. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, I wish that everybody was single like me and Jesus because you can devote so much more of your time to the Lord. But he also recognizes that it's not for everyone and it's better to be married than to burn with sexual passion. And uh, in Matthew 19.10, right after this exchange on divorce, Jesus' disciples come up to him, take take him aside privately and say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry They say if if remarriage is really adultery, Jesus, then it's not worth the risk of getting into marriage in the first place. We'll just stay single. And Jesus' response is, yeah. But 
Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Singleness is a gift, a sometimes tough gift. But if God has given you the gift of singleness as a heavenly father who is perfect and who knows what's best for you, whether this is just for a season of your life or whether he intends for you to be single all of your life, receive it for what it is, a gift from a good and perfect heavenly father. And use it as an opportunity to love and serve and enjoy him with more of your time than I'm, than I'm able to. Secondly, marriage is also a gift. But if you're single, marriage is also a gift, and it's one of God's greatest gifts. And so if you're single and you know in your heart this is not God's lifelong calling for me, then I would encourage you to get married. And I love this quote from John MacArthur. I, I, I just had to find a way to include this. MacArthur says, find somebody. Don't look for the Messiah. Just find somebody. I keep saying this to girls, you know, the Messiah came and went. You've got to settle for somebody else. Some of you are in here hanging around waiting for the perfect person to come up. Look, just find somebody in whom Christ lives, who desires to serve Christ, and don't postpone marriage needlessly. Get married. This is the grace of life. We need more kids in the nursery. The kingdom of God grows this way. You know, hanging around until you're 30 years of age, just checking everybody else out. Guess what? They're checking you out and they don't, they're not thrilled either. <laughs> so just find somebody. I, if I, MacArthur says, if I could wish anything for myself, I wish that I'd gotten married younger because it's such a wonderful thing, a blessed thing, God honoring thing, a gift of marriage. Gotta love John MacArthur. He keeps it real. Thirdly, um, thirdly, to those of us who are married in this room, and if that's you, most of us, I suspect, I charge you, I encourage you, I commend you to stay married. No matter how hard it gets, stay the course, love, honor, serve, and support your spouse for your mutual edification for the glory of God. Fourth, if you're divorced, if you unjustifiably gave up on your marriage, or worse, if you violated your own covenant vows and tore asunder your sacred bond, you should feel the weight of that. We're all sinners in need of grace. God calls us to confess, feel the weight of our sin, repent and turn back, but know that forgiveness can be found at the foot of the cross. This is not the unforgivable sin. Conversely, if your spouse committed that violent act of divorce against you and abandoned, abused, or committed adultery against you, please know this morning that God sees you. God hears you. And he loves you. He cares for you. God is still good. Trust him today. We don't always see what he's doing in the moment. But his will becomes clearer over time. Perhaps he will call you to remarriage if your divorce was on biblical grounds. If it wasn't, then stay divorced. Don't add to your sin and be unjustly remarried and commit adultery in Jesus' eyes. Don't do that. Which brings us lastly to those here 
And I know we have some of you who were unjustly divorced and who are already remarried on unbiblical grounds. It's the trickiest of all. I want to offer you, when things get tricky, I just quote other people so you can get mad at them. I guess I picked it, but they're way wiser, way more faithful students of the Bible Bible than us. So this time I picked the other John, John Piper. He charges us, you should one, acknowledge that the choice to remarry and the act of entering a second marriage was sin. Acknowledge it for what it was, sin. And confess it as such and seek forgiveness. Secondly, you should not attempt to return to the first partner after entering a second union. See Deuteronomy 24 again. Number three, you should not separate and live as a single person, thinking that this would result in less sin because all, their, all your sexual sin is an act of adultery. The Bible doesn't give prescriptions for this particular case, but it does treat second marriages as having significant standing in God's eyes. That is, there were promises made and there has been a union formed. It should not have been formed, but it was. And praise God that we serve a redemptive God that can say in Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil, I use for good. Even your marriage, (laughs) you went into it with bad intentions, adultery, I can use for good. It is not to be taken lightly, Piper says, promises are to be kept and the union is to be sanctified to God. While not the ideal state, staying in the second marriage is God's will for a couple and their ongoing relations should not be looked on as adulterous. So we're going to do away with the notion of perpetual adultery. It's not right. So lastly, uh, for all of us, regardless of your station of life this morning, I just want to bring us full circle back to the gospel. God really is holier and more perfect than you could ever imagine that he is. And you really are far more sinful than you ever dared imagine. And yet hear the good news this morning, friends, that Christ loves you far more than you could ever have hoped for and deserved. Amen. Let's pray.